Our scripture reading today is from Matthew, chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Amen. Thanks, Steve, for that. Steve, I know that you're sick, and I just want to say I like your sick voice. You read well. has a lot of gravitas to it. I want to ask you guys to bear with us. Um, since this is our first Sunday, this, uh, the slides are messed up, and we can't mirror. Whatever they see is what you see. So they have no idea what's coming next. So if you see a lot of schizophrenic kind of like back and forth clicking, that's that. So just, just ignore it. And, uh, and hopefully you have a Bible. I don't even know if they have pew Bibles here. Do they even have pew They do. Okay, so if you need a Bible, there's Bibles around you. We're going to be, as Steve read, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, and then we're also going to be in chapter 10. Um, this Sunday, this actually coming week on June 16th, would be one year as a church. One year ago, we sat, we stood around in my backyard and we took the Lord's Supper and we covenanted to be a family. You guys remember that? There was only 19 of us then. And it was crazy because most of us didn't even know each other. It wasn't one of the textbook kind of church plants where we all sat around together and we're like besties for life. And we had the Bible study and we're like, let's just plant a church. Like everyone's coming to Jesus anyway. And we like did that. It was more like, hey, um, like four years, four or five years ago, I had this, the Lord start giving me a vision for what God wanted to do in the cities. And the way we were going to go about it was strange. And so very few people wanted to be a part of it. <laughs> in fact, Joanne and I once tried to get a, a, a document and write down how many no's that we got from people that we knew. And we got 70 no's within just a year. And uh, so if you want to grow, if you want, if you struggle with rejection, <laughs> I do not recommend church planning because um, you have to deal with your insecurities real quickly. And, and so we came together kind of a ragtag church with people from four different churches, and most of us didn't know each other very well. And even two weeks before we launched our first gathering, one of our founding pastors stepped down. And so just wrench after wrench is being thrown. And I remember there was times where I was just like, Lord, are you, are you against this? A lot of people who said no to us, um, they pulled the God card. You know the God card? It's the God is telling me to do something else. And I'm like, God, it's so funny because it feels like you're telling me to do this and yet you're telling everyone else not to do this. And yet it's been one year and God has been kind to us. And when I mean kind, I mean kind in all the right ways. We, for many of us, this is the closest family we've ever had. And if you are in trouble, you are going to get multiple people caring for you. And a lot of us are growing in gifts that we've never knew that we had and loving one another and serving and growing in Jesus. And we saw baptisms last week and we are reaching the unchurched and de-churched and all the churches, all the different kind of categories you can think of. And, and so there are days that I can be discouraged by the state of where we're at, but then I just have to remember that 
everything that truly matters, God has been growing us in and giving us and blessing us. And I'm so grateful to be one of your pastors. I'm so honored. And so since we're coming on to our year anniversary, um, the leadership, we were sitting down and we we're talking about, you know, what we should do. And so we're taking a pause from our series in Hosea. And I'm going to give kind of a state of a union address. Now, I'm no president and this is not the United States, but kind of a, a 30,000 foot view of kind of what, what's going on right now in our church, what, what, what happened and where we're heading and how we can prepare for what God has for us next. And, and it's going to be really important that we're careful because one misstep and we can miss out on some sweet things God has for us. So as you guys know, there's a handful of new members coming in new baptisms we had, and we are increasingly trying to reach people that no one else is reaching, and we're trying to reach people who are coming from very unchurched backgrounds. And that comes with a great opportunity and great blessing, but also a great challenge. We're not reaching necessarily people who come with you know, their Bibles filled with colors. Some of them don't have Bibles. We're not reaching people who have all this background and, and stable homes and everything. We're reaching people who are like the people Jesus reached, messy, and like us, is that some of us don't know how to hide it better. And we're reaching these people, and the challenge that that can create is that we can begin to grow at a rate where the amount of immature or new believers will outpace the mature believers in a proportion that's unhealthy to where we start to drown. And because we're a high-touch church, like church is not about this Sunday gathering. It's about every day. It's about our family. And because we're, that's our emphasis as a church, if we begin to grow, grow at an exponential rate with people who are just completely unchurched, and we're, we're going to be really unhealthy. And we may grow in quantity, but the quality of soul care, intentionality, and caring for one another, it's going to go down. And so we need to prepare for that. We need to be getting our... Our, our ground ready for that kind of harvest, for that kind of rain. Um, you know, some people in the business world say we need to get better before we get bigger. And I don't want us, especially when you move to a new building, there, statistically, there's usually an influx of growth. Like we have a lot of visitors here. I don't know where you came from. You guys, new building, we'll be there, right? Like, I don't, I don't even know how this happened, but Typically, when churches move buildings, that you can see a 25% to 50% growth in that year. And that, that encourages me and scares me because I love making sure that our members are cared for. And I'm held accountable for your souls, right? Hebrews 13 says, I'll be kept accountable for your souls. And I love the fact that we know where our people are at. I'm not saying all of our people are perfect. By far, by far be it, we're not perfect. And I'm not saying everyone is perfectly cared for. We fail you regularly but I know that we are being faithful with what God has, whom God has given us. And for the most part, our leaders, we have a pulse of where every member is at, at some level. Um, and I like that, and I want to keep it that way. I find it problematic when churches become places where pastors don't even know who's in their church. Oh, hi, Pastor Sam, I'm part of your church. I'm like, I've never met you before. I, I don't ever want us to get there. Something's fundamentally wrong when shepherds don't know the name of their sheep. And we want to go beyond just knowing your name and being able to shake your hand, but I, I want to know you where you're at. I want our team to know you so that you, we can care for you so you can fulfill what God has for you. And I feel like God is trying to prep us. The word that God has pra- placed on my heart for this next season is he's preparing us for harvest. Let me, let me share an illustration with you. I heard this 
uh, one story. Two farmers desperately need rain. And they're begging God and they're praying. And after they pray, one of them goes out and plows his ground and gets it ready for the rain. And the other doesn't. Now that's from a movie. Some of you guys are smiling if you know what that movie is. It's kind of a cheesy movie, but it's... uh, Anyway, which farmer really believed God was going to provide the rain? The one who just said, oh, well, when it comes, then I'll do stuff. Or I know he's going to provide. I know he's going to come through, so let's prepare. And I really believe God is going to pour out his spirit on the Twin Cities. In the surrounding area, we have about 3.5 million people here. And in the next 20, 30 years, we're going to have an influx of close to 800,000 more people moving into the Twin Cities and a third or fourth of them will be immigrants. And I just have to say, we need to get ready for that. And most of them are not following Jesus. Most, most of them have a terrible fate ahead of them if something doesn't intervene. And I want us to play our part. I don't want to be arrogant to think that our church alone is going to do it all, but I believe that we need to play our part in this movement in cooperation with all the other churches that are faithfully trying to seek Jesus and see people come to him. And so this message is really trying to remind ourselves why we exist as APC. I know getting the building can be distracting. I'm so distracted right now. Like this is so different for me, all the different things. And I just want us to reorient ourselves what, to keep the main thing the main thing. And I want to kind of prime the pump to help us think about if, 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 if things change real quickly. Right now, I want every one of you to imagine someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus that you really want to know Jesus. That's in this area, not like someone who lives in California, but like in this area, okay? Can you think of one person? If you can't, then that's problematic, okay? Imagine that one coworker, friend, family member, who it is, spouse, and imagine that person came to Christ tonight. And our church doubled overnight. We have 40 members, and we went from 40 members to 80 members, Overnight, we, get ba- we baptize them, we walk with them. Could we handle 40 new members? Could we handle 40 new unbelievers who have no background in Jesus, full of immaturity, full of confusions about who they are, who God is, what their calling is? Could we handle that? I, I want to be, have the confidence that in a year's time, we can grab any member at our church and say, hey, this person just came to Jesus, can you help disciple them? I know that we're not all there and I want to be patient as God is patient with me, but I want us to get there. I want us not to have a category where there's a small few in our church that actually makes disciples and the rest can sit back. See, there's something called the Pareto principle where there's usually 80-20 principle. Usually 20% of the people do 80% of the work or 20% of the people give 80% of the funds and so forth. It, it It transcends so many different categories. And I don't want our church, our church to be like that. I hope that we can be an 80-20 church where 80% of our people are doing the work of the ministry and laboring and only 20% are the ones who are just brand new babies that we're caring for and those who are going through tragedies that we need to walk with. Amen? I want that for us. And I hope that stirs your hearts. We got to prepare for harvest. And so first and foremost... If we want to be able to be that kind of church, we need to first be following Jesus ourselves. We can't invite people to follow that which we are not following. 
And if we, if we say so much that APC is a family, we say that all the time, we're a family, we're a family, we're a family. And we've said this in the past too. And I want to say it again. I want, I want one of the most attractive things about our church is the way we love each other. That people be like, man, Sam's, he's okay, preacher. But man, you see how they love each other? Like that would be so good. I, to this day, I know of nobody who's come to this church because they like my preaching. And I like that. I like that. Like it hurts my feelings a little, but I like that. Because it's not about a man, and it's not about a sermon. It's about a people that the Spirit of God is actively filling and moving through. And, and for us to be able to be that kind of vibrant community that is compelling to believers and, and undeniable for unbelievers, where unbelievers will say, there's no way that they could live like that. They could love like that. They can be that way without God being real. I want us to be that kind of community that we love in such a way that unbelievers will say, you know what? I don't believe in God, but man, that community makes me want to. That community just makes me want to believe that there's, there's, there's hope, there's truth, that what they're saying is true and re- real. And, and so that's why I want to kind of reorient ourselves. Like, it's not about this building. It's not about the service. It's about the community and that we can become that potent community that is so compelling. So here's the main point if you're a note taker. I want us to all together as a church and those who are visitors, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to recommit ourselves to following Jesus and helping others do the same. And if you're not a Christian here, I'm so grateful that you're here. And it takes a lot of courage to come to a foreign place. Like if you walk outside of the building and look in this, this place looks like, what is this place, right? Like it doesn't look like a church. It can be very scary. Like we could be this cult and shut the doors all of a sudden, right? Like it's, it's very courageous of you to be here. And what I'm going to appeal to you is not to recommit, but for you to commit yourself to following him. There's no one better. And our, our text is going to help us do that. Would you look at Matthew 9? I need this passage, Oh. What, what this passage teaches us is something that is easily forgotten. And maybe you have had seasons of this, but you've forgotten. Two clarifiers as we're going into this passage. One, I'm, I'm going to be primarily going sequentially, but I'm going to be skipping around a few times. And then two, Jesus gives this, mes- this mission specifically to the 12 apostles. So there are certain realities here that won't be exactly transferable, but for the most part, all the principles here are transferable to us. Okay, those are my two qualifiers. Now, before we look at how to follow Jesus, let's look at what he did. We want to look at whom we are following. So here's the first question. What did he do and what was he like? Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Okay, so Jesus is preaching. So we're going to take a lot of stops and we're going to try to break this down. So Jesus is preaching. What is, he, what is his message? What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, what is the gospel of the kingdom? Is that the same thing as just the gospel or is it different? Is there such a thing as a gospel and then there's also the gospel of the kingdom? Well, yes and no. Okay, let, let me break it down. First of all, the first word in the gospel of the kingdom is gospel. And gospel is, for those of you guys who have been familiar, it means what? Good news. It's good news. The gospel is good news. What is the good news about? Well, the good news about the kingdom. Well, what's so good about this kingdom? Well, if you could look at the next screen, there's a picture from the Bible Project. I don't know if you're able to see that. Can you dim just a little bit? Wow, look at this. Fancy. We have dimming powers. Kind of. Um, so the Bible Project has a breakdown of Matthew. Now, we're not going to keep it this way. We're not doing that. But 
But what you're going to see is that in chapter 8 through 10, Jesus is going throughout the region and he is systematically bringing healing and hope and restoration to every category you can pretty much imagine, every major issue. And so he's bringing healing to a leper that was unclean, that would be ostracized from the community. He's bringing uh, inclusion to this person and healing, physical healing to the skin. He is bringing salvation to a non-Jew, which would have been pretty much unthinkable for the average Jew. He's bringing healing to a sick mother who had a fever. He's bringing power. He's showing that he has power over nature where he commands a storm to stop. That even the brokenness of our weather that is a result of the fall, that he has power and authority over that. He has authority over demons that no one could have a, no one could really manage. I mean, demons were so powerful and so unmanageable that they would just have to exclude people and they would have to be in the cemetery like you see in Matthew. He heals a paralyzed man. I mean, please do not let this fall from, the, from your ears. A man who can't move his limbs has no feeling. He gives him feeling and he can walk and move. He brings a dead girl back to life. He has power over life and death. He brings sight to, a blind, to two blind men and he gives voice to a mute man who cannot speak. You can turn the lights back up. Thanks, Charlotte. We're gonna keep tweaking and playing around with all this kind of stuff, all right? So please just, whatever you see, it, it may never, you may never see it the way we're doing it right now. Um, and so what is Jesus doing here? In all these healings, he is, in healings and all these miracles, he's giving everyone a little taster, a little glimpse of what it looks like when Jesus' kingdom comes onto the earth. When Jesus comes to the earth, there are no lepers, there are no dead people, there are no demons tormenting people, there's no ostracized, there's no, none of, the, none of this. He's giving everybody, hey, this is what it looks like when I'm going to come and make things new. And so he's proclaiming it and he's demonstrating. He's doing both. And so the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, is that Jesus, when he comes back, he's going to make all things new. Now, later on, if you keep reading the scriptures, the Bible progressively reveals through Jesus and other prophets that the way to get to this kingdom is only through Jesus, only through his death. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. But now let's look at Jesus's heart Look at 9.36. When Jesus, he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We're going to look at the first half of this verse. He sees the crowds and he's moved with compassion. This word here, the word compassion, just doesn't do, do justice. It's, it, this word... Um, it's a word that denotes like it's coming from your gut. You know those times where you're so emotional that you physically feel it? Like you feel sick. You feel it in your gut, like someone rejects you and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I got punched in the gut. They, they usually don't punch you in the gut, right? But you feel it, right? It's, it's kind of like that. Jesus is seeing the crowds and he's so moved that his, he feels it in his very being, in his physical body. He's feeling just this gut-wrenching sense um, and moved with compassion and love and care for them. Why? Well, because they were harassed and helpless. Now, let me break that down, but, but, but before we move on, can you just stop and feel the reality that Jesus feels? And, 
And I, I do like some Jesus movies. But the problem with a lot of Jesus movies, especially the ones that I grew up on, they're a little better now. But they would have a Jesus that just had this very glazed look over his face, typically blonde. And the guy didn't feel a thing, right? He just kind of just like walked around. And, and what that potentially does is creates this idea that Jesus doesn't feel. But look, he feels right here. He sees you and he feels for you deeply. That's important. It's good to have a God that feels. It's a good, good to have a God that looks at you and he deeply feels. But why does he feel this way? Because the people are harassed and helpless. And this is the case spiritually and physically. They were spiritually under the bondage of demonic forces. They were spiritually under the, de- the, the bondage of sin. They were spiritually un- harassed and helpless under the bad shepherds of the day, the rabbis that led them astray. They were spiritually harassed and helpless under a culture that does not value what God values. And also they're harassed and helpless physically as they were under the effects of the fall with the brokenness of sickness, disease, and, and death, and handicaps. But also Jesus, the, the pastor says, they were sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. And so if you know anything about sheep, sheep are dumb. And I'm not trying to be offensive to those of you guys who love sheep, but they were, they're, they're not smart. And if you don't take care of them, if they don't have a leader, they will die. They don't know how to self-feed themselves or, and look out for themselves and strategize together and make plans. And, and, and they, they need a leader. And so these people were harassed and helpless by spiritual forces around them, the culture, their own sinful hearts. And also they are just wandering around needing a guide because all the guides around them were corrupt. And so Jesus sees them and he deeply feels for them. Now we're going to move to verse 37 and it's going to shift from the metaphor of talking about a flock to now a field. Let's see what Jesus says. Then he said to to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the laborers are few. What does a harvest represent? I think the harvest here represents distressed people. But I think it means more than just hurting people. I think it means, it suggests it's hurting people who are just ready to be helped. That would be open to Christ, would be open for help if you would just give it to them. The reason why I said that is because he says it's plentiful, but the laborers are few. So it suggests that if there were just more laborers, more helpers, more people would be helped. You follow the logic there? It's kind of like having a giant farm with all the best fruits that you can imagine and veggies if you're into that, right? And, and you're given only a short amount of time to pick whatever you can, but it's just you. And you're like, I, I, there's so much ripe fruit. And if you wait too long, even if you ran out of time, everything's going to start dropping because they're, gonna, they're going to overripe and spoil. And that's the kind of imagery that you should have. You can imagine a giant field of people who are just ripe for the picking for Jesus, and yet... We just don't have enough people to grab them, to care for them, to love them. And, and, and I know this is going to sound like an overstatement, but I literally pray this prayer like twice a day. Guys, I, we, we need more labors. We so need more labors. There is so much need in our church and, throughout, and, and through our church, the people we're reaching. And so I pray this all the time. I say, Lord, would you raise up labors inside of us and ra- raise up labors outside of us to bring them in? And so for the visitors here, no pressure, but I've been praying for you if you're the right fit. <laughs> if the Lord would have you here, if, if you could faithfully be part of this mission that God has given us. I'm begging God for more laborers. The harvest is so plentiful. 
So what should you do when, then you, when you are moved with compassion and you want to be a laborer, you want to do something, you want to see loads of people who are harassed and helpless to be cared for? Well, verse 38 is what you should do. Jesus then says, uses the word, therefore. Therefore, because of all that I just said, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We pray? Why don't we go? Why doesn't Jesus say, the harvest is great and the laborers are few, so therefore go? He says, therefore, what? Pray. That, that seems contradictory to me, and I was thinking about this. What does he say else in this passage? He says, who are you praying to? the Lord of the harvest. And you're praying that he would send out laborers into his harvest. You see that? The possession there, that language? I think what this passage is showing us is that at the end of the day, no matter how hard we work, no matter how many people we counsel or care for, pray for, um, and, and serve, everything rises and falls on this one God who creates, who's the creator. He's the owner. And so before we go out and try to like, hey, let's do this, you know, we're, we're going to go to him and we're going to say, God, we can do nothing apart from you. Lord, you're the one who owns all things. And we're going to depend on you. We're going to trust in you. Now, here's the, the following question that should, should come to our minds. Who will go? If you're going to pray for laborers, who will go? Well, as his disciples pray that prayer, the answer comes back immediately in chapter 10, verse 1. And they find out that they are the answer to their own prayer. <laughs> Could you go to ten one? So right after they pray that prayer, bam, then they're called to go out. It is hard to care and pray for something without eventually getting physically involved. It's hard to sincerely let your heart go and pray without invo- eventually involving your hands too. And so if you are here and you're like, man, I don't know what it means to make disciples. I'm not really serving. I'm not doing much. You want to know what step one could be? It's just to pray, sincerely pray. Pray, and if you keep praying, you may find yourself moving too as God starts moving your heart. What will they do as they go out? Well, look at the second part of this verse. Notice what happens. They receive authority They receive authority and they bring healing. (laughs) It's okay. There's a lot of grace here, but not next week. Just kidding. They they receive authority to bring healing and to, to bring wholeness and cast out demons. Now, does that sound familiar? Do you remember hearing that recently? Well, look at the next verse. It should be the next one in the slide or the second one. Matthew 9, 35. If you have a Bible, you can flip back. Jesus, he's preaching and proclaiming and then what does, it say? what does it say? Healing every disease and affliction. If you go back to 10.1, somehow, every disease and every affliction. Do you see that? Do you see that? It's the same thing. Why, why am I pointing that out? Well, the disciples are now empowered to do what Jesus did. So they follow him around and see what he did, and now they're going to go do what he did. Fundamental to being a disciple of Jesus is that you're actually imitating him. You look at him through the book. You look at his life. You look at his work in others, and then you imitate and follow also. You see this also in verse 25, Matthew 10, 25. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they, call, they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? 
Now, I know there's a lot of freaky things here, Beelzebub and stuff, and we're not going to get in all of those weeds right now. In the future, we could. But I want you to see that disciples should be like their who? Teacher. And servants should be like their master. You guys follow? So if you are a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're both a servant and a disciple of Jesus. And one of the most key passages in discipleship is verse 38, 1038. And if you've been around the church anytime, you've heard this. And whoever does not take his cross, take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. At the most basic level, being a disciple of Jesus is someone who is dying to themselves and surrendering to the will of another, Jesus. And conforming your entire life, the way you think, the way you live, to be all about that, that man, Jesus. Now, the question that should come to some of our minds if we think hard enough is how in the world could we do such a thing? How could we follow Jesus? How can we live the life that he lived, do what he did? That seems impossible. Well, you're right, it is. How can you do what he did? Well, look at verse 18 through 20, 10, 18 through 20. Now, there's, again, going to be a lot of context and weeds that we're not going to get into, but I want you to see one major point here. This is going to be the result of the 12 apostles and many other Christians who follow in their place. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the, can you read that with me? the spirit of your father speaking through you. How can they live this life of following Jesus and doing what he did? Well, they can't. They have the spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers them, just like Jesus. Remember, Jesus, even in his divinity on earth, he did his miracles out of dependence of the Holy Spirit. And we too are like him. We lean into the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's the one that empowers us to do that which we can never dream to do. And the disciples are going to have the Spirit in part right here. They do. But then shortly later, they're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And guess what? If you're a Christian, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're actually a step ahead of where the apostles would be at this point in history. Man, think about that. Think about that. Well, they're apostles. Well, you have the same Holy Spirit. You have the same Holy Spirit, right? And this is an important point to camp out because some of you here have categorized yourself as not a disciple and you're not going to make disciples and that's just something that unique, gifted, crazy Christians do. And you have put yourself out of the game. You have resigned yourself to say, I will always be immature. I'm just not that kind of Christian, Sam. And you know what you're doing? You're literally saying that your weaknesses are greater than spirit's power that your background, your lack of knowledge, your history, whatever it is, is greater than the Spirit's power. And you need to stop because that is offensive to the Holy Spirit in you. He is so powerful. And he's just waiting for people to lean in on him and stop depending on their own strength. And so if you're someone who's just given up and said, you know what, I'm just, I'm just not that kind of, stop it. And I don't say that in like a condescending, like stop it, you know? But like, listen, he's in you. He who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. 
in the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is in you. Disciple making and living the life Christ has for us is ultimately not something that we produce. It's not something that's sourced from us. It's something that flows through us from the Spirit. And the same Spirit that is empowering us is also we have the Father that cares for us. Would you look at verse 29? So we have the Spirit empowering us, and then we have a Father caring for us. Because I'm going back to that question that I asked earlier. How can we do this life? How can we live this discipleship life? It's so dangerous. It's so costly. It's so hard. Well, look at verse 29. The Father is caring for us. Are, two, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even if the hairs of your head are numbered, fear not. Therefore, you are more of more value than many sparrows. There's a lot here but I want you to see that the Father is watching over you. So anything that Jesus calls you to, the Spirit will empower you and the Father will see you through it. He will carry you through it, no matter how dangerous, no matter how hard, how intimidating. He will watch over you and he will provide for you. There's another passage that I skipped over that just really clarifies that he's gonna provide for everything as the disciples are sent throughout the villages. He say, hey, don't take anything with you. I got you. I got you. I own everything. I own everything. I love this quote by Hudson Taylor. It should be on the screen. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. I want us to hold on to this, 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 this quote and really the principles and the verses that come that uphold that quote for our church. Guys, if, if we do God's work his way, we'll never lack God's supplies. And I, I know that I think about money on a regular basis, think about our church and our giving and where we're at and can we afford more, more laborers, more equippers and can we do this and that and can I get my jet pack? And I'm just kidding. Um, sorry, I shouldn't have ruined that moment. I, I think about these things and I just got to hold on to that. Like, and, and if you're like, man, this, this, this life of following Christ is hard and I'm anxious about my finances, I'm anxious about where I live and if I'm going to be cared for in my career, listen, he will not he will not let you run dry. He will supply. He cares for you. He's your father. Now, let's go to this question that should, we should all wrestle with. What is the cost of following Christ? What will it cost to follow Christ? The next question up there. Would you look at Matthew 10, 21? Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's a heavy word right there. Jesus will bring division because ultimately he can't be assimilated into our lives, just placed on a part of our, our worldview. He, he is everything. He's reality. He's the center and so that's what he does. Jesus brings division and brings hardship. Would you look at verse 34? Even more explicitly, chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And there's a lot here in this passage. I just want to clarify, Jesus is not encouraging you to reject your family. He's not encouraging you to hate your family. 
But what it's going to look like is absolute allegiance to the Lord Jesus will at times, for some of us, come to the point where your family will reject you. And if you pick your family over him, you will be rejected on the last day. It's a hard word right here. This isn't no you know, hallmark Christian card that you send to someone. Like this is, this is heavy stuff. And it would only be acceptable if Jesus is who he says he is. If he truly is reality, if he truly is the Lord, if he's truly the answer to everyone's need for life and hope and peace and joy, that would be acceptable for him to say it because that would be the most loving thing for him to say. Because he is those things and he wants to get people to say, say, listen, I am source of life. I am what you're looking for. And so I'm going to say these hard things to try to hedge you in and bring you in saying, I'm the only way. Don't go to others. Verse 38, again, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Listen, if you are a Christian and you're not daily having moments where you're dying to yourself, where you're doing something that God is calling you to do and you're like, oh, something is terribly wrong. You have mistaken, mistaken what true following Jesus looks like. And I'm not saying your life should be drudgery. In fact, your life should be full of joy, even though it'd be simultaneously full of challenges and sorrows and pains. But something is off if we have replaced the cross with a cushion. And Jesus is just there to fit our needs. I once asked one of my old best friends, um, he, he may be the most Christ-like person I've ever met, at the time he was at least. And I asked this guy, I said, hey, how are you so much like Jesus? You are so godly. This guy was so Christ-like that people would literally test to see his reaction by doing bad things to him, like his friends. Like one time we were hanging out at a house and his friends tried to put, light his foot on fire to see if he'd get mad at them. Like this is how Christ-like he was. I, I dare not to be that Christ-like that people are testing me. And I asked him, I was like, yo, how are you so like the way you are? And he gave me a very simple answer and obviously there's more background to it and he's just giving me a sweet, sweet little answer. But he said this, every day when you feel like God is calling you to do something that you don't want to do, do it. And when you do it, you're going to go, ah, I don't want to do this. It hurts. This is not like me. This is not natural. But every single time you say yes to him, you become a little more like that. And over time, that becomes natural for you. And if you keep following like that over the course of a lifetime, you become so much like Christ. I, I found that really helpful. And then I kind of forgot it for a while <laughs> because it's painful. I don't want the cross every day. Do you? No. Who wants the cross every day? The cross is not a jewelry, something you put on jewelry. It's a cross. It's, a, it's torture. And yet that torture brings life. Life to all people and life to us daily if we let us if we come to our senses and surrender to him and know that he's better than we are. And yet every day we wake up and we try to have that battle again and to see who's going to be boss and whose way is better, right? Now all of this, there's great reward. Take heart. Look at verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's the great paradox. You lose your life for Christ. You give it up but you actually find life. You lose your control and you actually find that you get the one who can control your life better. You surrender your lesser pleasures for greater pleasures. This is the great paradox. You lose to find. Philippians 3.8, one of the 
dearest verses in my life kind of encapsulates this really well. Indeed, I count it all as loss. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And you see, Paul here is reflecting the same heart. Listen, listen, I, I, I can lose everything because if I can lose it all, I can get more of him. And I want that for you. I want that for me. Now, I want to transition to become a little more practical for us. I want to simplify discipleship for us here at our our church. Because I think that when we say things like, hey, make disciples or disciple, who here, if you want to be honest, that sounds intimidating to? Like, that just sounds like a lot. Okay, like three people. Well, the rest of you guys are lying or doing it. Disciple making sounds super daunting, so I want to simplify it as much, much as possible. And, and please note that when I say making disciples, I mean the process of maturing and multiplying them. I'm not talking about the initial part you see in Matthew 28 of making disciples, of evangelizing, and bringing them into the kingdom, into the family. Okay? Now, three simple ways we can all disciple. If you're a note taker, it's going to be up there. Number one, reading and applying the Bible with others. Oh, sorry. It's okay. Um, it should be the next one, I think. Never mind. Okay. It's not your fault. It's me. It's not you. It's me. Um, one of the most simple things that I found in helping people grow in Jesus is just simply saying, hey, let's read the Bible together and apply it and pray. We have a Bible reading plan. We're reading through the Bible in two years. If you want to know what, where a really simple place to start, just get your Bible and say, hey, have you done the reading today? Nope. Okay, let's read it together. Let's read it and pray. I, I, I know that sounds so simple, too simple. For the, you, you perfectionists out there, you're like, oh, that's too simple. It can't, it can't be that. It, it can be very simple as that. The word is powerful. And just sitting before him with your word, the Bible open, is so life transforming. And so if you want to help make disciples, just grab other members and just be like, hey, you read today? Yesterday we're driving to a wedding and I didn't do my uh, reading in Deuteronomy and Joanna just read it to me while we drove and we talked about it and we prayed. It's very simple. And I became built up in Christ and my thinking became refined and it was good for my soul. That's so simple. Anyone can do that. Even someone who's a brand new Christian. We just baptized four, five last week and some of them are brand new Christians. They could literally do that with me. Even though I have more training than them. They can say, hey Sam, have you read? Nope, I haven't. Let's read it together. Boom, right there, discipleship. Number two, being a Christian around others. Here's another simple way to make disciples is being a Christian around others, okay? Most of what you are is not what you've been explicitly taught, but what has been caught by your culture. So all of us have different ways that we relate with others, the way we do life, the way we live at home, the way we handle our finances, the way we talk. And a lot of that has actually been inherited from our culture, our parents, our family members, and so forth. And we don't even know they're in the background influencing us. And so, so much of the way you are is caught, not taught. And that goes for the same with Christian discipleship. When you're around other Christians who love Jesus more than you, or who are mature in areas that you're not mature, and maybe you're mature in areas that they're not mature in, it starts to rub off on you. It really does. And so, one of the most simple ways to disciple is just getting around people who are loving Jesus in everyday life. And so, guys, I have been discipled by Justin is Justin here? By Justin's gratitude. Justin, you are one of the most grateful people I've ever met. 
so grateful that I'm like, dude, stop being so grateful because you're showing me how great ungrateful I am. And so I'm a little more grateful because being around Justin. Joel is back there. Joel gave generously to our church even when he lost his job. And that floored me that he gave even when he wasn't sure anything was going to come. Joel, you taught me how to be a little more generous like Jesus with your generosity. Charlotte, you have consistently loved people in hard places even when they've wronged you. And you've taught me how to love a little more like Jesus. TK is caring for kids right now and he's shown me how to love teens a little more when I get so annoyed by them because I see so much of myself. Oh, oh, sorry, I forgot you're here. <laughs> just kidding. I was a youth pastor for like most of my life. And so I just kind of just, I'm, I'm done. But, but TK is reminding me how precious you are. And he's telling me how to love again. Joanna has time and time again, shown me how to parent better and love my kids as I ought to love them and be the father God has called me to be. Theo has challenged me in many ways, but he's especially challenged me in his boldness in evangelism. And I remember going to the Warriors, uh, not the Warriors, yeah, the Warriors game. Sorry, it should be called the Timberwolves game. And uh, they were hosting the Warriors. And we were just walking around during halftime. He's just like literally just like pulling people aside and asking to pray for them. And that challenged me. I didn't need to read a book on evangelism that day. I just, I saw it and I started to absorb it. And he started to stir up my boldness because I used to be a lot more bold. Mark Harrigan has taught me how to pray more and intercede for people. He prays for you guys so much, and he prays for me. And I pray more because of him. The Pavluks tirelessly serve over and over again, and they've taught me to be more servants like them. The Wilsons have shown me hospitality and a willingness to abandon their plans radically and change their whole life to adopt, to foster and adopt a teenager. I could go on and on. And those are people who are in my MC and DNA and notice not a single one of those people are a pastor. Every single one of those people I have more education than. Biblical education. I know Greek. I know Hebrew. I know things like that. And yet they disciple me. Simply being a Christian and living life will disciple other people. If you're intentional about it. And that's why we say following Jesus in everyday life. And that's why our primary discipleship Method is not here, which this is part of it, but it's about getting our lives around each other and seeing how we parent, seeing how we love, seeing how we fail, seeing how we confess, seeing how we do our life. How do you be a Christian and watch Netflix? How do you be a Christian and you go to work? We need to disciple each other by just being around each other and seeing each other. Number three, help others do the basics. This is the last point in simplifying discipleship. Help others do the basics. Ask basic questions. I promise there's a slide. I know one for sure. Ask basic questions. Pray for basic realities. Encourage the basics. Listen, some of you here, you're newer in the faith. You can do all those three with me. You, you can ask basic questions. Hey, Sam, how are you doing loving your wife? Ask church. You, you, could, you can ask, hey, have you been loving Jesus today more than anything else? You can help me in that. And the reason why I keep pointing to myself, not because I want like everyone to just disciple me, is because sometimes people, I think a big hindrance to discipleship is a feel, feeling of inadequacy and unworthiness. And I know that for many in our culture, we hold pastors at another level, which I think in some ways it's 
unbiblical and in many other ways. In most ways, it's very unbiblical, the way we hold pastors. And I'm just using myself as an example to show that you can do this with anyone. You can pray for basic realities. Hey, pray for me. Pray for that I'd pray more. <laughs> pray that I'd love people more. That's easy, right? Basic. Third, encourage the basics. Hey, Sam. Hey, let's, let's love people. <laughs> that's basic. Let's pray more. Hey, that's basic. Hey, would you read the Bible with me? That's basic. Encourage the basics and you can go a long way. See, I'm trying to demystify discipleship as this thing where you have this guru who has all these people like Padawan sitting around him and just dispelling information. Oh, yes, oh, yes, and I have an answer for that question. And I have, no, no, discipleship, real life, all life discipleship, is just very basic. It's just doing these basic things. And all of us can do it. Literally all of us could do these things. And now here's one thing to think through. What's the scope of who you do this with? Because even as a church as small as ours, it can feel overwhelming. You can't do those things that I just listed with everybody. You can't do those with 10, really, 12, 15, unless you're doing it full time. Or you have unusual capacities in your life for the empty nesters or something like that. Well, at our church, we divided our church into missional communities and DNA groups. So every one of our members has maybe 10 or so people in their missional community that they can do this with. And then more and more intentionally, they can do it with two or three people in their DNA group. Everybody has capacity for that many people. If you don't, we want to help walk you so you can get to the place where you can have capacity for these things. And so I want you to get the stress out of, oh, I got to disciple everybody. No, 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 just disciple a few well. And if we disciple a few well, eventually those people will disciple a few well and those and those. And then that's how you see that big pyramid that you see in any pyramid scheme <laughs> where it's like, and then you're a billionaire in five years, right? Like, except this is way more valuable and legitimate. <laughs> except we see revival, Except we see our nations change and Jesus going everywhere. And so let me just conclude with this. Let's, let's keep the main thing the main thing. We cannot miss this. We cannot be a church that doesn't follow Jesus and help, helps others do the same. And so let me ask you this. Are you completely committed? And I know there's different distractions here. I just want to call everyone's attention if you can. Are you completely committed to following Jesus with all of your life? Can I ask you guys back, th- back there too? I'm not trying to embarrass you guys or lose my mind against you guys. Are you completely committed to following Jesus? You wouldn't believe how many Christians I meet, so- so-called Christians, who think that they can be Christians and not have to follow Jesus. I meet them all the time. That they've created a category that you can be, have a savior without a Lord. That you can be a disciple. You, you don't have to be a disciple, but you can be a Christian. There is no such thing in the Bible. There's no such thing. That's like being a restaurant that doesn't serve food or a vegan that doesn't eat veggies or an Asian that doesn't do math, right? Like (laughs) these things cannot be. They don't make sense. They don't compute. And so Christians, young people love racial jokes. I tell you what, when I was a youth pastor, those were my bread and butter. Lose it, lose any attention, just pull out a racial joke, make fun of me, they're all right back. And then I lose them in 20 seconds later. So let me ask you this second question. First question is, are you fully committed to following Jesus? Second question is, are you fully committed to making disciples? Are you completely sold in that? If you're not making disciples right now, let me ask you this. Will you in six months? What about a year? 
what about two years? Would it be shocked if I were to go in the future with you and say, hey, this is you in five years, you're not making disciples. Would you be shocked or you'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. What about 10 years? At what point will you be fully committed into fulfilling the very mission God has given you? And we can get so excited about our careers and different passions and missions and let this just be something that, oh, I'll get to that. I'll get to that, like deep cleaning something in your house. I, yeah, I'll get to that one day. This is not something you deep clean. This is, this is your life. This is your purpose. If we miss this, we miss it all, guys. We cannot miss why we're here. We will have eternity. God has purpose for us in eternity. He has purpose for us right now. We have a mission he's given us. And if we reject his mission, we're missing it. And I don't want any, any of us to miss it. So if you have neglected disciple making and neglected following Jesus and being say, sold out and saying, Lord, I will follow you. I'm going to ask you to repent today and say, Father, forgive me. Father, forgive me. Jesus, forgive me for not following you. And I want to recommit myself. And I also want to ask you guys to pray this week for more laborers and pray for the rest of your life for more laborers and commit yourself to these simple, doable ways of making disciples. So let us all recommit ourselves to following Jesus and helping others do the same. And I want to say this final thing. I shared about the gospel of the kingdom earlier, that there's a kingdom that's going to come that's going to make all things right. No cancer, no sickness, no war, no abuse, no pain. And listen, that is available for anybody who wants it but it can only come through one, and that's Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you won't have that kingdom. You'll have the opposite of that kingdom. Everything that that kingdom has, you will have the opposite. And I don't want that for you. And you can have him. And Jesus made a way for you to have him. Jesus solved the big issue that's throughout all of mankind, and that's how do sinful people be reunited to a holy God, a good God, And what Jesus did is not just sit on the sideline and say, hey, come and get good enough. Clean yourself enough and then you can be with me. He said, no, I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to get right there in the muck of things. And I'm going to take upon all the sins of my people. And I'm going to die like they should have died. I'm going to be tortured like they should be tortured so that I can be reunited, so I can reunite my people with God. And you can be reunited with God today if you want. And we'd love to talk to you more about that. And I just want to call us all, guys, what if, what if we were a church that every single one of us were enjoying Jesus daily and making disciples? What would our gatherings be like if we weren't coming in here cold, but we were already encountering God all week and being used? Can you imagine that? What would be us be like? What would it be like if all of us were making disciples and then a year from now, we had 40 new members who are all brand new believers? That'd be sweet. Yes, Lord, do that, Lord. Would you pray with me? (sighs) Father, there's so much here, Lord. And I know that no matter what I say, if your spirit doesn't help people realize that you are the way, you are the truth, you're the only one worth following, that nothing would, nothing of, of eternal significance will happen. And so, Father, I beg of you, I beg of you that you'd convict people deeply, convict me Areas that I am not following you. Areas that I said, you could have this, but not this. Areas in my life that I put red tape around and said, Jesus, everything but this. Lord, I pray that we would just all surrender to you because you are a better leader than we are. You have shown that time and time again. 
And I pray that we would all have a fresh conviction by your Holy Spirit to make disciples, to give our lives, to pour out our lives for others, Lord. Our lives, we, we, they're not our own anymore. They've been bought with a price. And therefore, we want to glorify you with all that we say and do in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that all people's church would, would be a disciple-making church that we would not be an entertaining church, a church where it's all about just coming to a nice service and getting fed, but a church that raises up warriors for you, equip many people to go out, to go where no one's going and to reach who no one's reaching, Lord. Please, Lord, I pray that you prepare us for harvest. Oh God, I pray that you would exceedingly abundantly answer these prayers more than I can imagine or think that a year from now, perhaps we have 400 new believers. But to do that, we need to be laborers. And so I pray, raise up more laborers among our church. Raise up those who have been on the sideline, who put themselves on the side that they believe the devil's lie, that they're not good enough because they're looking at themselves instead of looking at you. Bring people into the game who've been sitting in the penalty box, Lord. Raise up an army, Lord, through our church, Lord. And do this in all the other churches in the Twin Cities and beyond, Lord. Do this for your glory, Lord. We thank you. We love you. And I pray if I say anything that was wrong, did not represent you rightly, that was unbiblical, would you correct me, Lord? But all that is true, all that is noble, all that is right and coming from your throne, Lord, let it transform us and deeply impact us, Lord, for your glory and our joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen.